Excuse me, a bit loud. Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 this evening. And just read from verse 17 as we begin. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 this evening. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Laomer, and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Let's open our time with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Holy Father, we thank you that, Lord, we are able to be here again this evening. We thank you that we're able to gather around your word. We pray that this evening you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us, instruct us through your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, enable me now through the Spirit, you give me wisdom and guidance to speak, that, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this evening, and that, Lord, we would be uh, blessed and refreshed by your word this evening and leave singing your praises. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, last Sunday morning, if you remember, we talked about the the four kings of the east who came across to the, to the west to make war with these five cities of the plain of Jordan. <clears throat> and these kings from the east were under the leadership of this man, Chador Laomer. And we talked about the fact that these kings were from the Babylonian region, so they traveled up north and they'd come round uh, down the Jordan Valley on the, the eastern side of the Jordan River there. And they left the trail of destruction destroying every city in their path. And they went uh, around these five cities, destroying the cities below and to the west of them, before finally they met with these five cities, the the kings from these cities and their armies, they met with them in the plain or the the Vale of Siddim. Uh, We said last week that that's probably the the Dead Sea. That seems to be where that Vale was, the Vale of Siddim. And we saw that battle was put in place there and and the, the result of that battle, of course, was that the kings of the east were successful. They defeated the five kings of the plain. And then they ransacked Sodom and Gomorrah, taking all the people and taking the spoils of war with them. Now, let's just read from verse uh, 9 there, just to refresh our minds. It says, With uh, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tadel, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar and Ariok, king of Eliasa, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And so we saw that amongst the captives, of course, was Lot. Lot who had... Uh, spied the, the plane and he'd been tempted to move in that direction and then of course he'd ended up in the city of Sodom itself living amongst these wicked people indeed being part of these people and so he was taken captive and this was as we said God's chastisement of Lot God was chastising his servant this this was a, a wake-up call uh, reminding him trying to point out to him this is not where he should be we saw God in His grace actually rescued Lot uh, from 
his predicament. Okay, he was taken captive. He's been marched north up the Jordan Valley. And Abraham was the tool that God used to rescue him and to bring him safely home. Uh, we saw that in verse 14 there. It says, And when Abram <coughs> heard that his, brothers, sorry, that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobar which is on the left, left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And so Abraham learns of the predicament of Lot and he arms his servants. We saw he had 318 armed servants with him and he pursues after the kings of the east and their great army. And we saw that God gave him a miraculous victory, a victory against all odds. He defeats these kings, he recaptures Lot and his family and the possessions, and indeed all the other people as well who've been taken captive. And now this evening we find that Abraham is now returning. <clears throat> he's returning from the battle, he's coming back down the Jordan Valley, heading south, back towards where Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities are. And as he's traveling down the Jordan Valley, we see this evening that he's met by two kings, two very different kings this evening, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And we see that as we read before in verse 17, it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of uh, Chedor Laomer, and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. And so we see this meeting <clears throat> takes place here. These two kings meet with Abraham. And this meeting takes place at the vale of, uh, Valley of Shever, as it says there at the end of verse 17. The Valley of Shever, which is the king's dale. Now most commentators agree that the Valley of Shever, is, and, and which is later called the king's dale, <clears throat> is located not far from Jerusalem. They place it around where the brook Kidron is. Okay? Um, that's basically where they believe this valley of Shever uh, is located. And this same valley seems to be referred to later on in the Word of God in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Let's just turn there. <clears throat> Excuse me. 2 Samuel chapter 18. <clears throat> Second Samuel 18 and verse 18. It says this. It says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is, <coughs> sorry, and it is called unto this day Absalom's pillar. And so here we see Absalom. He erects this monument for himself, and it's located in this place called the king's Dale. And so it seems that this <clears throat> valley was still known by this name in David's day, in Absalom's day, okay, this place called the King's Dale. And it seems like it's given that name, the King's Dale, because of the meeting that takes place here in Genesis chapter 14. Okay, it was known as the Valley of Shaver, and it becomes known as the King's Dale because of what takes place there. Abraham meeting with these two kings. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this evening now we want to look 
at this meeting. We want to look at this meeting that takes place between Abraham and these two kings, and we want to look at Abraham's response to these uh, very different kings. And so first of all here this evening, we see the king of Salem. The king of Salem. Look there in verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and was the priest of the Most High God. In verse 18, we're introduced to um, this king here, this, this one who's a very unique, okay, he's a very unique and very mysterious uh, figure in the word of God, this mysterious character in God's word. Abraham is met by this one called Melchizedek, king of Salem, and we're also told that he is the priest of the most high God. And the encounter here in chapter 14 really doesn't last long, does it? In chapter 14, we only read of him in verse 18, 19, and then verse 20, and he then disappears. There's no more mention of him. It's very brief, a very quick interaction that takes place here. And you know, if this was the only place we found him in the Word of God, we would be tempted to sort of just pass over him. as just this very brief figure. Think nothing more of it. But this fascinating individual is, of course, again referred to later on in the Word of God. 900 years later, King David in Psalm 110 and verse 4 refers to Melchizedek again. And then, of course, in the New Testament, almost a thousand years after that, we have the writer of the Hebrews okay, in chapters 5, 6, and 7 referring to Melchizedek again. He becomes a very prominent figure. And in both Psalms and in Hebrews, Melchizedek, of course, is connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and so at the very least... He is a wonderful type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the very least. And that's what we want to talk about this evening. What, who exactly is Melchizedek? And why does he come to meet with Abraham here? You see, this character, this individual becomes very important in the Word of God. And this interaction here with Abraham, this very short interaction, becomes very important because of what's said about him later on in the Word of God. So let's consider two questions here concerning this meeting. The first one is, who is Melchizedek? Who is this man called Melchizedek? As we said there in verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. The name Melchizedek means righteousness. And so he is the king of righteousness. And then Salem means peace. And so this man, this king, he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And this is clearly taught in the New Testament by the writer of Hebrews. Just turn over there, Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews actually makes this point himself. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And so even the word of God tells us that this is what his name means. He is the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. And this really is a remarkable title for a king 
in Canaan at this time to possess. This is a remarkable title to find this, this one having this title in a place like Canaan. You've got to remember Canaan, of course, at this time is filled with wickedness and sin. I mean, we've been talking about it in the weeks prior to this with Abraham. And he's entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to him. And he's there, but he's not staying in one place. He hasn't gone and joined himself to any city, has he? He hasn't joined, and joined with the people of the land. Why? Because he's remaining separate. He's a, a pilgrim, a stranger. And his eyes are upon the city whose builder and maker is God. And so Abraham's in the land, but he's remaining separate because he doesn't want to be part of the wickedness that's taking place there. He's separate from them. And so to now all of a sudden read of this king of righteousness and peace coming out to meet him out of the blue is very strange, isn't it? It's very strange. It seems completely out of place with the land of Canaan at this time. But the name is also very appropriate. It's a very strange name. The king of righteousness, the king of peace. We don't expect to see that here. But his name also is appropriate because we're told that he's the the priest of the Most High God. It says that there at the end of verse uh, verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And so his name is appropriate. It's not as if he just has this name and it has no reference to who he is or what he's like. The name is appropriate because he is the priest of the Most High God. And this is the very first mention of priest in the Word of God. The first time we see that word. And it's connected here with this man. This man. And this man obviously has a very special relationship with the one true God, the God of heaven. In verse 19, we read, it says, This is talking about Melchizedek. It says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And so verse 19, he calls God the Most High God, and he calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. And that title tells us that he knew God. He had a relationship with the Lord. You see, that, that title that he gives God stresses that God is the Most High. He is superior. Okay, to all other gods and goddesses who are there in Canaan at this time that the people are worshipping. Okay, he says he's the most high. He is the superior one. He is the true God. Superior to all else. And he also calls him the possessor of heaven and earth. He stresses that the God he serves is the creator of all. This goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with God creating everything. And he says that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it. Why? Because he created it. And so the point is that this one, Melchizedek, his name is not just some random name. His name actually speaks about him and how he actually knows the one true God, the God of heaven, the possessor of heaven and earth. And this Melchizedek serves and is priest to the same God that called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to journey to Canaan. Now, Abraham himself acknowledges this fact when he gives him tithes of all. Verse 20 says, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. The fact that Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek 
is Abraham acknowledging the fact that he serves the same God. Okay? They worship the same God. They are related here. Okay? They are joined together. They know the one true God. And so here we have a king, okay, in the midst of Canaan, we have a king who serves and is priest to the one true God and he comes out randomly out of nowhere to meet with Abraham, to meet with him as he comes back from the slaughter of the kings. You know, this immediately raises more questions than answers, doesn't it? Okay, as we just discover those few things about him, it immediately raises more questions than giving us answers. You know, how is it that a godly man like Melchizedek ever became king of a city in a land that's filled with wickedness? How did he ever become king of a city in, the, in, this, in this wicked place that, where the Canaanites live, the Canaanites dwell, the land of Canaan? Now, the city that he's king of is, is Salem. Now, most identify that with Jerusalem, okay? That's, why they, that's what they connected with. It's the same city. And in Psalms, Jerusalem is referred to by that name, Salem. And so it's, it's um, more than likely that's the city that he's connected with here, Jerusalem. But at this time, both the Word of God and archaeology both confirm that at this time that city is inhabited by the Jebusites. They're one of the ungodly Canaanite tribes and they're the ones who possessed the city when King David eventually took the city from them. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, just turn over there. <clears throat> 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 5 and verse 7. <clears throat> I will start in verse 6. 2 Samuel 5 verse 6, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever goeth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind, that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house." David eventually takes the city and he makes it the capital city of the nation of Israel. But when he takes the city, it's in the possession still of the Jebusites. They are the ones dwelling there. It's their city. And so how does Melchizedek, a godly man, a godly king, how does he become king of a Jebusite city? But not only that, how is it that he becomes recognized as a priest of the Most High God? You see... Being priest naturally implies that there are others who are also worshipping the one true God here in Canaan, doesn't it? Because what does a priest do? Uh, uh, by implication, a priest leads others in worship of the Lord. A priest, by very definition, intercedes on behalf of the people. And so this implies then that there is a city, a city here in the land of Canaan, that is full of God-fearing people led by a king who is also their priest, Melchizedek. And so if this is indeed the case, if this city, Salem, Jerusalem, is indeed full of God-fearing people with Melchizedek on the throne, it seems extremely strange then that Abraham is called by God to leave the Earl of the Chaldees 
and to journey all the way to the west to establish a new nation that would be true to the Lord God. There seems to be already a nation in existence there in the land of Canaan. A nation that is also led by someone who Abraham recognizes as being his spiritual superior when he gives him tithes. Abraham also recognizes his priesthood as being superior. And in Hebrews, it tells us that his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, which would come through Abraham. And so if this is the case, why then does God call Abraham? You've got this wonderful city of God-fearing people with Melchizedek on the throne, and he's the the priest of the Most High God. Why? Why does God call Abraham to leave the early Chaldees? You see, all of these things, these questions, these difficult questions... They make it extremely difficult to accept that he is just a man, that he is just a local king who dramatically appears on the scene here in Genesis chapter 14 and then disappears until later on we see him referred to as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these difficulties are then added to when we consider the other passages that speak about Melchizedek later in Scripture. Let's turn to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, verse 4, says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Psalm 110, verse 4, the priesthood here, Melchizedek's priesthood is said to be an eternal priesthood. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, that's added to. Let's turn over there, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 1. Hebrews 7 verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of of the Most High God, who, Abram, um, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And in verse 4 it says, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. In verse 3 in particular, we have these amazing statements, a series of amazing statements made about this, this king, Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews declares that he had no father, without father, without mother. No father, no mother. He says, no beginning of days, no end of days. In other words, no end of life. Seemingly, he didn't die. If you take the verse verse 3 there at face value, if we interpret God's word literally, which we do, that's what the verse says. Okay, the verse says that he had no father, no mother, no beginning or end of days, seemingly implying that he didn't die. And the verse also declares that he was made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. He abides as a priest continually. It says that his priesthood hasn't 
ended. His priesthood, again, is declared to be eternal. You see, all of these statements, as I said, if you take them literally, which is what we believe, if you take them literally, it makes it very difficult to believe that Melchizedek was simply just a local king of a Jebusite city who came out to meet Abraham. The commentator Morris, he writes this in regards to Hebrews 7 verse 3. He says this, The usual interpretation of these amazing statements is that they refer to the fact that Melchizedek appears on the scene suddenly and then disappears again as suddenly. There is no genealogy listed, no record of his parents or children, no record of birth or death. This is no doubt the naturalistic interpretation. But one who believes in verbal inspiration cannot help wondering why, in this case, the Holy Spirit did not say that Melchizedek was without a record of father or mother or of genealogy or of birth or death. Could he not foresee that stating it in the way he did, leaving out the simple word record or some equivalent, would easily and naturally lead readers to a misunderstanding of Melchizedek's true nature. You see, the point is, if we're not meant to interpret this verse literally, why did God not include a word record or something like that to give us a clear understanding? You see, that the clear understanding of the verse, without reading into it, without adding anything to it, the clear understanding, simple reading of Hebrews 7, is for us to understand that Melchizedek was not just some local king, but rather he was indeed Christ, pre-incarnate. This was another occasion where Abraham, has, Abraham, Abraham sorry, has a meeting with the Lord. And it's a very special meeting. He meets the Lord and he has this interaction with the Lord here. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself appearing unto Abraham. Morris again writes this, he says, Although this interpretation is not without its own difficulties, it does seem to harmonize most naturally with the doctrine of verbal inspiration and the principle of literal interpretation. The only person of whom the statements in Hebrews 7 verse 3 could literally be true as they stand without addition of any other words supposedly implied would have to be none other than the second person of the Godhead. That's the point. The only one that that verse can be speaking about, if you take it literally, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be speaking about anyone else. can't be referring to anyone else. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can fulfill that verse there, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can fulfill that literally. And so it would seem to me, I mean, it's my position anyway, it would seem to me that this man Melchizedek is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, coming and meeting with Abraham. And so let's secondly, the second question I want us to ask is why? Why does Melchizedek, why is Lord Jesus Christ here come to meet with him? Well, according to the verses, There are a couple of reasons here that he comes. Let's just go back there, Genesis chapter 14. There are a couple of reasons he came and met with Abraham as he returned from the battle. The first of these reasons is found in verse 18. It says, The Melchizedek king of Salem brought forth bread and wine. We're told that he brings forth bread 
and wine. Now remember, Abraham, he's just been on this um, march with his men. and They've chased after the kings of the east. They've pursued them all the way to the north. It's quite a few kilometers they've traveled. They've beaten them in battle, and now they're heading back. So they're returning weary, aren't they, from the battle? They're returning weary, and they, they're in need of refreshment. And that's what Melchizedek does here. He comes bringing bread and wine. He brings refreshments, nourishments for Abraham and his men, the nourishment that he needs. And so we see that Melchizedek, first of all, the first reason he came was to refresh the servant of God in his hour of need. But we also see that he came to bless Abraham and to remind him of who gave the victory. Look in verse 19, it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God who hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. You know, often the easiest time for us to forget, to give honor and praise unto the Lord, to give him glory, is after a great victory, after we've had great success. Now, we're overconfident, we're excited by the victory, excited by the success that we've enjoyed. And so we forget that it was really the Lord. We forget to give him praise, we forget to honor him and give him glory for the victory. And so Melchizedek here, he he arrives just in time, if you like, to remind Abraham that it was God. It's God who gave him the victory. It's God who delivered his enemies into his hand. He says that there in verse 20. And blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. That's what he's reminding Abraham of here. He says, Abraham, God delivered the enemies into your hand. God gave you the victory. And so this meeting was a timely reminder, a timely reminder that God was the true power, that God was the one who gave him that victory. It's a timely reminder that all glory from the victory goes to God. All glory belongs to him. And so we see that by this meeting, Abraham is not only physically refreshed, but he's spiritually refreshed too, isn't he? Okay, physically with the, the bread and wine, but spiritually with this reminder to keep his eyes on the Lord and give glory to God. And we see Abraham's response to this meeting at the end of verse 20. It says, and he gave him tithes of all. Abraham's response is that he gives tithes to Melchizedek of all that he had. In particular here, it's referring to the spoils of war. He gives to Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives to him a tenth part of all the spoils taken from the battle. And so what is he doing? Well, he's, he's honoring the Lord, isn't he? He's giving to the Lord, to God. He's giving him a tenth part of all that was taken in the battle. This is the right response, isn't it? This is the godly response. You see, by this act of giving tithes of all that he had, by this act, Abraham here is acknowledging that God had given him the victory. That's what he's doing. He's agreeing with Melchizedek and he's honoring God. He's agreeing that the spoils belong to the Lord. Abraham gives God the glory. Commentator Wearsby writes this. He says, This is the first mention of tithing in the Bible. To tithe is to give God 10%, whether of money, farm produce, or animals. 
And when we tithe, we acknowledge that God owns everything and that we are grateful stewards of his wealth. And that's what we see Abraham doing here. Abraham acknowledges that his wealth is from the Lord. He acknowledges that the the spoils of war belong to the Lord. He acknowledges that it was God's and all glory belonged to him. And so having met with Melchizedek and being refreshed both physically and spiritually and responded in this godly manner, we see Abraham now secondly has a meeting with the king of Sodom. That's the second main point this evening, the king of Sodom. Look in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Abram, sorry, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men of Eden and the portion of the men which went with me, Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion." It's almost immediately after, isn't it? Okay? He's met with the king, of Mel- king Melchizedek, king of Salem, the Lord Jesus Christ most likely. And now Abraham straight away has this interaction, this meeting with the king of Sodom. Now back in verse 2, we were introduced to this king as being a man named Berah. In verse 2 there, <clears throat> says that these may war with Berah, king of Sodom. And so this is the, the king. Okay, and seemingly he has survived the battle. Okay, he fled uh, when his army was overrun in the slime pits there okay, in the, the valley of Siddim. He's fled. He's fled to the hills. And now as Abraham is returning victorious, Berah comes out to greet Abraham. He comes out to congratulate him, if you like, on the victory and to offer thanks. And you know, there is immediately here a massive contrast between these two kings. You know, Melchizedek, as we said, is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But Berah is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, a den of iniquity. That's what Sodom was. Chapter 13. We read it before last week, I think. Chapter 13, verse 13. It says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Sodom was already known for its wickedness, for its sin. And Berah is the king of that place. And so if you like, you could say he's the king of unrighteousness, isn't he? Okay, he's the king of unrighteousness. He's the very opposite of Melchizedek. And in verse 21, we see that in thanks for what Abraham has done, he offers for Abraham to keep all the spoils of war for himself and just to give back the people. Okay, verse 21 says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Now, indeed, according to the custom of the day, this was Abraham's right. Okay? This was his right according to the custom. You know, he was the one who had led the band of men traveling north, pursuing the enemy. He was the one who had led the victory. And so, by right, by custom, the spoils of war belonged to him. The king of Sodom is acknowledging that right, if you like. Okay, he's acknowledging Abraham's right to the spoils, and he also wants to reward Abraham as well. He wants to reward him for what he's done. 
You know, this must have been a very tempting offer for Abraham. Think about it. Now, I know he's already a rich man. We've, we've talked about it, how the Lord has already made him rich. But this is riches beyond compare, okay? This is riches, again, you know, Abraham's here. This is talking very, very rich, very wealthy. You see, we're talking about the riches of five cities, aren't we? Five cities that have been sacked, that have been overrun by these enemies, and indeed, not just those five, the other cities they've ransacked along the way as well. Okay, so we're talking about more than five cities worth of wealth that Abraham has recovered, and the king says, you can have the lot. This is a very tempting offer, isn't it? The commentator Meyer writes this, he says, it must have been a very tempting offer, no slight matter for a shepherd to have the chance of appropriating all the spoils of settled townships, so large and opulent, especially when he seemed to have some claim on them. It would have been a very tempting offer. And indeed, he seemed to have every right to take it to himself, to claim the spoils of war. As we said, he was the one who led the men in battle. Abraham had risked his life to save them, to bring the spoils back and to bring the people back. He'd risked his life. He had led them in battle. But that's the point, isn't it? If Abraham had said, yes, I'll take the spoils of war, he would have been claiming the glory for himself, wouldn't he? The moment he did that, if he'd said, yes, I'll take it, he's saying to the king of Sodom and everyone else present, I did this. He's saying, yes, I deserve the spoils. I deserve this. He'd be claiming the glory from the victory. He'd be taking the honor, taking the praise. You know, suddenly that meeting with Melchizedek takes on even more importance, doesn't it? It was perfectly timed by God because God knew exactly what the king of Sodom was about to offer to Abraham. It's God's perfect timing. That meeting with Melchizedek prepared Abraham for this meeting, for this encounter, for this temptation that he's about to face. You see, that meeting, as I said, reminded him that God had given him the victory. It wasn't him. It wasn't his military skills. It wasn't how great he was. It was God. God that had given him the victory. And it's no doubt in, in a large part to that, because of that meeting with Melchizedek that we see Abraham now respond in such a godly way. And we see his response in verse 22. It says, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, and her, a skull and mammary, let them take their portion." Abraham here refuses to accept the spoils of war. He refuses to take it. He's made an oath to the Lord. He says, I've lifted up my hand to the Lord. He says, I've made a promise to God. I'm not taking these things. And he refuses them. He turns it down. You see, Abraham refuses to take the glory for himself. He refuses to take the honor from the victory. Take that which belongs to God. If he'd taken the spoils, he would have been stealing the glory from his God. From his Lord. But he also refuses the spoils because he doesn't want the king of Sodom 
to be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I made Abraham who he is today. I made the nation of Israel. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say that. He says that at the end of verse 23 there. Okay, it says, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. You know, again, that would have been stealing the glory of the Lord too, wouldn't it? You see, the Lord was the one who made Abraham rich. The Lord was the one who had given him all those possessions, everything he had. The Lord was the one who was blessing him, strengthening him. It was the Lord who was going to make of him a great nation. You know, Abraham didn't want the king of Sodom to steal that glory that belonged to the Lord. See, Abraham wanted all praise, all glory to go unto his Lord. You know, Melchizedek, as I said, had just reminded Abraham that God was the possessor of heaven and earth. That was the name he used. He says the, the possessor of heaven and earth. And Abraham here, he puts his faith in that, doesn't he? He puts his trust in that truth. The Lord was his portion. And that was enough. You see, he didn't need the ungodly king of Sodom to make him rich, did he? He didn't need the, the spores of war. He didn't need the world to make him rich. Abraham here is declaring, I'm going to trust and rely upon the Lord to provide my needs. That's his faith here again at work. You know, he genuinely wanted all glory and honor in his life from every area, every aspect to go to the Lord. The commentator Gertz writes this, he says, he, sorry, he let the king of Sodom know in no uncertain terms that he worshipped the Lord God most high who was capable of meeting his needs. After all, Abraham's God was the possessor of heaven and earth and since God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Abraham at this moment was able to trust God for his future needs. And that's the point. Even in this area of his life, the, his possessions, his needs, Abraham wanted God to be honored, wanted God to receive the glory. Not the, not the ungodly king of Sodom. You know, like Abraham, we need to make sure that in every area of our life, God receives the glory. That God receives the honor. That God receives the praise. You know, when we experience success in our ministry, God receives the glory. When we experience victory in our Christian life, God receives the glory. You see, we need to remember that it's Him who enables us. It's God who enables us to do these things. Even if it's our, our job, God enables us. Whatever it might be in our lives, God is the one who enables us and we need to give glory and honor back to Him. You know, we also need to, like Abraham, remember the Lord is our portion. He is the possessor of heaven and earth and, and therefore we don't need what the world offers. We don't need the world to make us rich, do we? The Lord is our portion. And we need the, the praise and the glory of our life to go to Him. We don't need the reward or praise of men. The Lord is our portion. Let's close in the word of prayer. Dear Lord, and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for Abraham and Lord, his example of faith. And Lord, I pray you help each of us to remember that you are indeed our portion. You are the possessor of heaven and earth. <clears throat> help us to rely upon you each and every day in our lives and help us, Lord, to give all glory and honor back to you for everything you do for us, how you enable us, how you strengthen us to serve you here on earth. May, Lord, we indeed praise you in everything we do. And may men be led to praise you. Uh, because of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.